everyone. Jeremy, are you with us? I certainly am. Hello. 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 We're going to introduce you. Oh, everyone out there, we have a great show today. We have with us author Jeremy Taylor. Jeremy, you are so vibrant. You know, working with Jungian perspective is so, uh, it's so interweaving and it allows us to be able to embrace our inner self uh, more fluidly. <laughs> you are absolutely. the founding member. Yeah, absolutely, huh? Well, you're the founding member and a past president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams. Um, you've written four books integrating dream symbolism, mythology, and archetypal energy. Uh, your latest book, The Wisdom of Your Dreams, Using Dreams to Tap into Your Unconscious. Many schools and seminaries of the Graduate Theological Union of Berkeley, California, for over 40 years. And That's right. Teach it. Yes. So uh, we have a real dream specialist on our hands today, so we can't wait to get started. Um, a lot of people, because I'm in a dream group myself. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people have trouble remembering their dreams. Do you have um, any exercises that we can do for that to remember? Oh, dreams? sure. Yes, it's a it's a very important first step. It's very hard to work with your dreams if you can't remember them. First of all, it's important to know that everybody does dream, whether they remember it or not. The laboratory evidence is in on that. Anybody who says, I don't dream, is actually confessing that they have lost the trick of paying attention to that part of their lives. You can often uh, prime the pump of their dream memories by asking them, what, you don't even remember a dream from back when you were a kid? And usually even chronic non-recallers do remember something from their dream lives when they were children. And the association between rapid eye motion, the eyes jiggling around under the closed eyelids, and dreaming is so strong, has been recapitulated in the laboratory and so many different sleep laboratories all over the world that the the scientific consensus is, yes, everybody does dream, whether they remember it or not. It is a cultivatable skill, and one of the things that you can do is to look at your diet. Most of us have B vitamin deficiencies, at least in comparison with our ancient ancestors. And so adding a simple B vitamin supplement to the diet is a relatively sure way to increase dream recall. Because it's a relatively easily studied question, it has been studied to death, and every year somebody gets a graduate degree because they gave 100 undergraduates placebos and another 100 undergraduates B vitamins and then asked them in a huge 300 question questionnaire so that even the people in the study don't know what the focus of the study is, have you experienced an increase in your dream recall since the beginning of this study? And the experimental group in the mid to high 80% say yes, 
and the control group in a statistically relatively meaningless 3 to 4% say yes. So the chances of increasing recall simply by taking B vitamins is very high. It's the closest thing we have to a legal dream pill. <laughs> That's really wonderful. My gosh, how, you know, talk about flipping a switch. Yeah, yeah, it can be done. Now, it's also true that you don't have to do that. If you're interested in remembering your dreams and you don't want to fool around with vitamin supplements, probably the single most important thing to do is to take what the 12-steppers would call a ruthless personal inventory and decide that you really do want to know what the dreams are telling you even with the conscious realization that they may tell me some stuff which is disturbing and disruptive. Because in my experience, all dreams come in the service of health and wholeness and speak a universal language. And it's important at the beginning to recognize that the dreams come in the service of health and wholeness, not necessarily comfort and convenience. And my experience is if the dreams are offered a choice between health and wholeness and comfort and convenience, they will pick health and wholeness every time, even at the cost of fairly dramatic discomfort and grotesque inconvenience. In the long run, that discomfort and inconvenience reorganizes itself into a very small price to pay for the deeper wisdom that came along with it. Can you ask a question for your dream to answer it before you go to bed? Absolutely, absolutely. The technical name for that is incubation. If you're looking at a, a serious dream book with an index, that's the place to look that up, is under the under the term incubation. And, of course... Anything we allow our minds to wander over as we're falling asleep is a kind of incubation. So at some level, we're incubating our dreams all the time. Incubation refers to taking more conscious responsibility for that and focusing on the information that we really want. And as I say, in that sense, we are less than consciously incubating our dreams all the time. If you want to do it more consciously, there are elaborate rituals in virtually all the world's religious traditions about how to enhance the response of the dream to the waking mind's inquiries. Now that brings us, from my point of view, to one of the greatest problems in this work. On the one hand, in my experience, only the person who has the dream to begin with is in a position to say with any certainty at all what the deeper meanings of his or her dreams may be. And the problem is that without the aid of others, we individual dreamers in solitude are going to be uniquely and selectively blind to the deeper meanings and implications of our dreams. It isn't a question of intelligence or sincerity or emotional strength or anything like that. It's simply the way it is. 
at this stage of the development of human consciousness, it is so much easier for us to see the way the dreams make reference to things we already know than it is to see how the dreams are metaphorically introducing new information into our waking efforts to live satisfactorily. And the dreamer is the only one who can say when that happens, but the dreamer is uniquely disadvantaged in seeing those in solitude. We all need the help of other people to see our dreams more clearly, which is one of the reasons I've been promoting the notion of dream groups and group participation in dream work for the last 40-plus years. Get together with friends whom you care about and you know they care about you and start sharing your dreams together and great gifts of insight will follow. My experience is that's practically a guarantee. I know. It's it's a very special group that I'm with. I mean, we really become close because we share our inner wisdom. That's right. How long have you been together with the the folks in your group? Oh, two years. Oh, that's lovely. That's certainly more than enough time to, to have your experience of what we both know to be true. Intimacy grows out of this work. We get to know each other at very deep and satisfactory levels. Um, I can g- give you an example that I didn't even put it together. Um, I My mother had passed away and I had her ashes and I was changing, I was going to do something different than what she asked. <laughs> uh-huh. So I, I received a dream that um, I was making a recipe but I was changing it and she was really upset over it me changing the recipe. Uh-huh. So so in our dream group, figured out that she's wanting me to do her original wishes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, well, that's a very interesting dilemma. Um, see, if it I mean, were me... Uh, because that's the only thing we can do. The only thing we can do is imagine our own versions of each other's dreams. And I know this isn't even a whole dream, but when I imagine a dream of changing a recipe and my mother in the dream being put out, at very least, by my doing this, it isn't necessarily a piece of information that I should do it the way my mother wanted. It raises the question of, am I sure enough about what I feel like I need to do, my new version of the recipe, to put up with argument from the other world? Just because my mother thinks it's a bad idea doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad idea. Uh, Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so the dream, if it were my dream, immediately asks me the question, well, Jeremy, what do you want to do about this? This is an important question. We, the dreams, believe that this is a question that the conscious decision-making process should be focused on with the understanding that there's a part of me that feels sort of guilty about 
going beyond my mother's wishes. But there's another part of me that believes that that's a better way to do it anyway. And if it were me, the dream is saying, it's up to my conscious mind now. And, of course, it raises all of those issues about how I deal with my mother's authority, how I have dealt with it since I was a kid, how I have grown up past it, how I'm still influenced by it. It's a lovely, profound suggestion that my imagined version of your dream is making. And only you can say, and only our listeners can say what the answer is in their own imagined version of this dream. And one of the lovely things about this way of work, from my point of view, is that any idea I have about what somebody else's dream means is actually an aha of recognition about what my own version of it means. So if I have an idea, well, somebody else's dream means this, it must be true for my imagined version, whether it's confirmed by the original dreamer or not. It's another one of the reasons why I believe so deeply in this group dream work process, because even things that are wildly off the case for the dreamer will turn out to be valuable for any number of other people in the group. And the dreamer will at least know what's not true about her original dream. And if I get enough understanding about what's not true, I'm pretty much left with what is. That's so true. And what we've found in our group, we have a common theme each time we meet. Our dreams are very similar. And oh, yes. Well, meeting together for two years, the only thing that would surprise me would be if that weren't true. Oh, actually, we're always surprised each time. <laughs> well, yes, there is that. Even when it's predictable, it's still surprising when it actually happens. It's like it's like synchronicity. I was just doing a piece of dream work with, with somebody uh, before the program started, and she had a dream about a purple egg. And a week or so later, she suddenly came upon an egg in the waking world, a little decorative egg that was exactly the same as the as the egg in her dream, a thing she'd never seen before. She saw it in her dreams first. And Carl Jung had a name for that stuff. He called it synchronicity. And he had a wonderful piece of wisdom to offer. At least it's wonderful to me. Jung says that when something seemingly accidental and random happens in the waking world and the person has a sense of this is meaningful, this is important, this is exactly like the egg I saw in my dream, which I'd never seen before in waking life, it points backward to the dream more than it emphasizes the importance of the waking event. It's a kind of mistaken literalism to just assume that because the dream predicted it, the event is important. I think the flow is in the other direction, that 
if the world turns itself into a pretzel and provides a synchronous event, what inevitably happens is that the dreamer remembers the dream. Our deja vu experiences are pretty much have been demonstrated to be memories of precognitive dreams. If I don't remember the specific dream and the synchronicity happens, I experience deja vu. I've been here before. Uh, I know what's going to happen next, and then suddenly it happens. And that's the important piece. The waking event points back to the significance and importance of the dream rather than the other way around. And thus that, something can be completely synchronous for one person and not have much meaning for the the, the, the person standing right next to him when it happens. Could that mean that we we because we dreamt it, we actually created it in uh, the real world just to emphasize what maybe this is what you just said, but to emphasize the dream. So yeah, I yeah. I would I would exercise a little more persnicketiness around the language of we created it because it makes it sound conscious. Uh, the event is created out of our experience. It's one of the few cases where passive voice is better, more accurate. <laughs> you know, one of the oh, great I... one of the great questions is who writes this stuff? You know, it wasn't me. I was asleep at the time. Well, I have a great example of that. Uh, I went to uh, a conference, and the, uh, the lady staying in the hotel had a dream that her new power animal was uh, a giraffe. And the next day, she found a squeaky toy, a giraffe squeaky toy in the hallway. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like your purple egg. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And what I would say is the waking world points backward to the dream and says this image of the giraffe is really important. Don't forget about it. And I could be walking down the same hallway with a bunch of people for whom giraffes mean nothing, and it's not a synchronous event for them. They go, yeah, some kid dropped a giraffe toy. Some dog, if it's a squeaky toy, maybe some dog dropped it. But for the person who just dreamed it, it is a significant event. If it were me, it would probably have something to do with spirit allies and gentleness and taking a higher view of things. Oh, exactly. Now, are See, now that's that's we, it's wonderful that you say exactly. That's an example of the archetypal quality of the dream. The image itself has symbolic properties that we can recognize independent of the personal drama that called it up. Carl Jung calls that amplification. It's one of the big things that he adds to Freud's original model of exploring dreams through personal association. Absolutely true, absolutely valuable technique, and when amplification is added to it, the depth of meaning and implication of the dream is revealed at another whole level. 
now. Jeremy, with with doing all these dream workshops that you do and, and lecturing, <clears throat> I guess I want to stay with uh, doing the dream workshops. What has come up in in these dream workshops? shops that maybe has surprised you and you didn't anticipate it because you work with this all the time. Is there anything that was like, wow, I never thought of that? Oh, what a great question. (laughs) You may find it hard to believe, but it happens to me all the time. It's one of the reasons why I have devoted my life to this work is that it is the rare dream workshop where I don't learn something, where I don't hear something I never heard before, where I don't have an aha about a connection that was there waiting to be seen, but I hadn't seen it. Uh, it's I find it endlessly fascinating because the dreams are always new. Even though they speak this universal language, Carl Jung calls them archetypes, even though these archetypes of patterned meaning appear over and over again, they appear in different forms that are always exactly right for the unique individual dreamer. And it is, to me anyway, so exciting to watch that process unfold before my eyes. You know, I, it's exciting for me, and I, I'm not in the dream group, so, but it's exciting for me to even have the idea that that my dream would also mean something for someone else in the group. Um I never even thought of that, and and that's really, um, you know, the the osmosis mm-hmm. part of of uh, this action that that people getting together and being able to have something meaningful hit their lives because of someone else's dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's yeah. part of what gives it life and. <laughs> You know, as I say, I've been at this for more than 40 years, and I'm actually even more enthusiastic about this work than I was when I started. And the list of things that I am even more enthusiastic about now than I was 40 years ago is mighty short. (laughs) A lot of things have proved to be sort of disappointing in the long run, but this one has not. Was there something about dreams that when you first started you thought were true and then you found out after working so many years with the dreams that that wasn't necessarily true? Oh, again, what a great question. Yes. Um, Well, you're, you're right. I think examples work a whole lot better than theory. When I started out 40 plus years ago, it's actually starting to creep up on 50 now, I just turned 70, and I started this work in my early 20s, so the math is inescapable. And back when I started, I knew just from what I'd read that everybody dreams of the recently dead. 
in all cultures, in all periods where history has been recorded. And in most of those records, dreaming of the recently dead becomes this concrete piece of experiential evidence that there is an afterlife, that things do not end at death. It's been a foundational piece for world religion. And at that point, I was pretty cynical about religion in general and rigid doctrinaire religion in particular. And I was very taken with the fashionable, symbolic interpretation of visitation dreams. That, it's still fashionable. the idea is that when we dream of the dead, the people we're dreaming about are people that we had intimate connections with in the waking world. These people were important to us. And that when we dream about them after they die, when their figures appear in the dreams, we are actually looking at parts of ourselves which were so deeply influenced by these folk that they wear the masks of the teachers for purposes of recognition. Now, I still think that's true. I still think there is a level where that is the case. But I've just worked with too many visitation dreams and had too many of them on my own to believe that that's the whole story. When I started out, I thought that was the whole story. But I've had too many dreams where the visiting whatever you want to call them, entities, spirits, souls, whatever, have conveyed information to the dreamer that the dreamer has absolutely no logical way of knowing. And then when that information is pursued and checked out in waking life, turns out to be true. And that has just happened too many times for me to think that the whole of the symbolic truth about visitation dreams is that they are just about aspects of the dreamer's personality that were influenced by the dead person before they died. Now, how that works, I do not know. That there is more to it than that, I am absolutely convinced. Now, there's one way, it's a very hard thing to talk about. It's very paradoxical. But there is one way to talk about it. In the depths of the psyche, in that realm that Carl Jung called the collective unconscious, it is true experientially that the beginning and the middle and the end all happen at once. There, and at the depths of the psyche, there is only the timeless now. And one of the things that means is that at that level the dreamers past and present and future are all taking place simultaneously. And so it is not that surprising that a noticeable percentage of the time, way beyond random chance, uh, a dreamer will dream a future event and it often comes in the form of a piece of information from a visiting spirit that turns out to be true. And the problem 
of precognition, which is what it's usually called, is that it assumes that the experience we have of the passage of time when we are awake is the whole story. And it's increasingly clear to me that it is the story when we are awake, but it's not the whole story, that we experience our lives at deeper levels of unconsciousness as whole. And whole means including the future. And so occasionally information comes to us that is uncannily accurate about things that haven't yet happened in the waking world and that is often in connection with communing with folk who in the waking world are dead and gone. You know, one way it helps helps me to think about it is thinking about my waking life. I was mentioning doing this piece of dream work earlier today about the purple egg. And this morning when I got up, that hadn't happened yet. That was a future event. And then I did it. It was a present event. And now in my life, it's a ghost of the past. It's the recent past, but it's still, it's not what's happening right in the moment. But in some sense, it is still happening. I'm holding on to it in conscious memory because it was such a a touching and moving piece of work for me. And my guess is I will I will hold on to it in that ordinary memory sense for a long time. You could also metaphorically say I will be haunted by the ghost of that experience for a long time. And you could say that the ghost of that future experience was already there before I caught up with it in waking life. Now, it's not fashionable to think about our lives that way, but really it is a way, I think quite accurate way, of describing how we live. The little boy that I used to be is dead, but he still lives inside me. The ghost of that little boy has become part of who I am now as an adult. And who I am now as an adult was a spirit presence in the life of that little boy. I didn't know who I was going to be. But there were aspects of my character and aspects of the world that were shaping my growth that pointed me in this direction of turning me into a a dream worker. And doing the dream work in this broader and freer venue of religious counseling rather than the more limited framework of psychological uh, therapy. All those influences were there. They were ghosts until they actually happened, but they were there. So it helps me think about all of that. Can we work on things that we're trying to um, get up? I'll give you an example. If someone had a relationship, they broke up with a husband, they divorced the husband or 
mm-hmm. but they're still hurt from it. Can they uh, work with their dreams on releasing that hurt and releasing? Oh, that? absolutely, yes. And again, you're you're describing an archetypal drama. Uh, <laughs> let me let me say something about the archetypes of relationship. Probably the most important element of relationship, I suspect it has always been true. I know it's true in my life. I know it's true in the lives of everybody I work with. I suspect it's true for everyone throughout the world, but it's a little bit like dream work. Only you can say. We are drawn together, the spark of attraction, physical and emotional and intellectual, all those things that make us go, whoa, who is this person? Hmm, I'd like to get to know this person a little better. And then we do get to know them a little better. And it turns into a relationship. And maybe we get married and, you know, things really start to roll. The main thing that's going on in that moment, in my experience, is unconscious projection. We project when it is easier to see aspects of our own being as though they belong to somebody else than to recognize that they are actual parts of our own psyches, our own whole selves. So the roots of romantic love and attraction have to do with seeing parts of ourselves acted out before our eyes and easier to see in the form of others. Let's let's talk about it in, in not quite so romantic terms. Let's talk about it in terms of intelligence. This intelligent person heaves into view in my life. And I notice, and I go, whoa, that's a really smart person. In that moment, unconsciously, it isn't a thing I do on purpose. It's a thing that happens. We all do it. I suddenly give that person credit for all my as yet undeveloped intelligence. And the problem is that in that moment, I suddenly cease to see who the person actually is, and I see them as though they were an embodiment of my intelligence, only I don't know that. From my point of view, it looks like this person. And then we get together, I see other parts of myself that are really exciting, da-da-da, and we have a relationship. And as time goes by, those projections get worn away. And if if one or the other of us is doing active internal work, exploration, what uh, Robert Johnson calls inner work, if we're doing inner work, it speeds the process up. And we begin to withdraw the projections that we made on the other person. And we begin to see more about who they actually are. And you get this famous classic situation that is true in all the divorces and separations that I know about. And 40-plus years of dream work means I've seen a bunch close up, not just in the waking world, but in the dream world as well, is that suddenly I begin to see who that person actually was, what their intelligence was actually all about. I thought they were math geniuses, and it turns out they're actually clever, clever puzzle solvers. 
And I'm not as interested in solving puzzles. I'm interested in math. And so there's this great disappointment. This person is not who I thought I was. Or actually, that this person is who I thought I was. I just didn't realize that I was seeing who I was in this person. This puzzle genius comes along, and I think they're an actual math genius because I'm the math genius. Only it's much easier for me to see it in somebody else than do the work of cultivating it in myself. It's a it's a tough thing to get a hold of, I understand, but it's really important. So much of our lives are shaped by this unconscious process. We do not do it on purpose. It just happens. So relationships are actually to learn about ourselves. Yes, exactly so. Which was one of the things that was so neat about the purple egg because... You know, from its amplified, collective, archetypal point of view, it's about the feminine. All eggs come from females. It's about royalty and elevated status, royal purple. And it's about as yet unmanifested possibility, but predetermined possibility. The thing about... A chicken egg is if if it hatches, it's going to be a chicken. It's not going to be an ibis. Only ibis eggs turn out to be ibises. You can't necessarily tell them apart. In a basket of eggs, you don't necessarily know what the creature is that's going to come out of it, but you at least know if it's all bird eggs that it's going to be a bird. And so this purple egg dream had to do in the dream the egg was given to the dreamer by her new lover and they have since broken up and one of the things that dream was saying is this relationship imagining being the the dreamer this relationship with my new lover is a place where some very important part of myself is going to get born. And one of the things that's going to happen is that the projection I am making on my lover is going to come back and I'm going to realize it's actually a part of myself. The egg is going to give birth to me and i don't i don't know the person that was being that was showing up in the dream but my suspicion just from a theoretical point of view is that the dream was also about him that the dream was saying you know this is going to be an important event for him as well as a result of coming together and being together and breaking up he is going to mature some he is going to grow some and some royal aspects of him are going to come consciously to the surface. So to actually get over the hurt and letting go... Yeah, that's right. ...what aspect of yourself that you were disappointed in. Yep, yep, yep. And it's always disappointing to see some aspect of myself as the exclusive property of somebody else. At the emotional level, at some point, it feels like theft. 
And one of the great tasks is to reclaim the parts of myself that feel as though they were stolen from me when I got into a more intense relationship. And the dreams in the service of health and wholeness always come to help us do that. Um, Jeremy, I've noticed here lately um, that you can also dream like when you're awake and you can see this happening, like you see something in in another person and you go, wow, you know what, I have a problem with that. And it's really you that you have a problem with. Yes, absolutely. Indeed. You and I both know that's true. Not all our listeners may know that, but you and I know it. And the more we do dream work, the harder it is to avoid that truth that I hear you describing. Now, is it important to journal your dreams? Sure. Um, If The main thing about journaling them is so that they won't be forgotten. Uh... I don't want to say that if you don't journal your dreams, you won't get anything out of the work, because I know people who don't journal their dreams who do get a great deal out of the work. In general, for most people, it is immensely helpful to write the memories down. Because unlike waking memories, memories of dreams tend to disappear if they aren't anchored in waking life by the magical act of writing, it will often be that the dreamer will remember having had a wonderful dream, but all the details are gone. Whereas if they'd paused when the details were still conscious and made notes about it, it would not be lost. So yes, in general, I am a great fan of keeping a dream journal. Actually, I keep I keep a single journal. I keep my dreams and my important waking events and the things that I would put into a scrapbook all in one journal. And I find that having all that stuff on the same pages has an integrating effect on my psyche rather than having a separate scrapbook and a separate daily journal and a separate dream journal. Keeping it all together in one book is a metaphor of integrating the energies of my life into a single life. Yeah, because it goes, it weaves back and forth. Yes, absolutely. So yes, it's a very good idea, but I wouldn't say, for instance, if somebody really doesn't like to write, I wouldn't say, well, you have to just suck it up and write. I know a couple of people, I don't it's less than a handful, but I know a couple of people who don't like writing and who have come to keep their dream journals as sketchbooks. What they do is draw little pictures of what they remember. And that tends to work in the same way that doing verbal narratives does. It's also for all of them become a doorway to writing the little sketches tend to turn into things that require words and little speech balloons appear. And so 
the aversion to writing is sort of naturally overcome in the thrilling experience of getting the vision of the dream down on the page. So I would say to any of your listeners who think, oh, keeping a dream journal, ooh, that sounds like an awful lot of work. Eck, I don't particularly want to do that. I would suggest if you like to draw, start with drawings. Make little sketches of what you remember. Any effort to render the ineffable dream experience into some kind of shareable form is going to return much greater value and energy than it costs to do it. It really is a win-win situation. I get lazy sometimes and I don't do it. Well, sure. If I'm if I'm getting lazy, I think part of the reason is that the process itself has become sort of cumbersome. You know, more than once in my life, I've had the experience of the dreams getting longer and longer and more and more complicated, and just feeling the prospect of writing them all down being absolutely daunting. And every time that's happened to me, and most of the time when it happens to clients that I'm working with, it's kind of a joke. And the dreams are saying, really, Jeremy, you think newspaper reporting prose is the only way to render these dreams? Well, you know, okay, then it's just going to turn into this oppressive job of work. But if you trust yourself enough to play with the memories, to turn them into haiku poems, which is one of the ways of minimizing the actual act of writing and maximizing the deepening understanding of what the dreams are all about, a period of writing a haiku off what I remember, or a period of just doing little visual sketches invariably when I feel oppressed by the time that it takes and the energy that it eats up to write these dreams down, when I have the courage to abandon the habit of prose journalism and just play creatively with the memories, the feeling of oppression disappears and the dreams themselves respond with bursts of joy and insight. You know, that's really interesting. Um, My dreams over the last few years, which I really love how they come through, uh, they come through in short spurts. Um, I can remember um, a lady calling me up and um and her her voice was she didn't even say taz she just said um it's exactly as i said it was and she oh first of all i heard a ring of a phone mhm <laughs> i picked up the phone and she says it's exactly as i said it was and she hung up like really abruptly right and i went whoa it woke me up it allows me to remember the dream. That's what happens in my dreams. I'm able to remember because of such weird things. All of a sudden, I pick up a yep. phone and yep. then the message, and then it's hung up. Yep. And I, I, 
and what's funny is, is I knew what, exactly what it was all about. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's true to this very day. Yep. And I thought, you know, I think about that every now and then, um, you know, how it was done. And, um, and I have dreams like this all the time, which is really kind of neat. Or just before I wake up, I, I get an imprint of a vision, and I go, wow, what is that? And it kind of wakes me up in a bold flash. I remember exactly what the dream was about instead of having to remember a whole big yep, scenario. exactly so. Yes. So Thank you. I That's a great it. example. Thanks. Sometimes little snippets like that are have more of a meaning than a, a great big involved mm-hmm. dream. Yeah, yeah. It's uh <laughs> all dreams, even the tiniest little fragments in my experience, have multiple layers of meaning. And that's another one of the reasons I think why it's so useful to work with dreams in company, in a group. Because on the one hand you have the dream with its multiple layers of meaning, no matter how small it appears to be. And on the other hand, you have the group with the inevitably different perspectives that each member brings. And so when you bring dreams into the dynamic of group discussion, there's a natural resonance between the multi-layered quality of the dream and the multiple perspectives that are provided by the group. A good Can we talk piece about, of group. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, talk. You have a group on uh, the internet, don't you? Oh, I have several groups on the internet. Yes. Now let people know about that because it's really important. Because sometimes people don't have a group, so they yeah. can, you know get into the the internet and become a member of a group. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I just finished a training program to train internet group DreamWork leaders. I did it under the auspices of the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Larger Fellowship. So we are now in a situation where you can go to the Church of the Larger Fellowship website and ask if you can be admitted to a, 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 a cyber dream group. And, uh, you know, there's, all of that is set up there. The training manual that I wrote, actually wrote and drew, it's in the form of a graphic novel, for that training is also available for viewing the whole thing you can look at for free in preview mode at the website blurb.com and if you want to purchase a hard copy you can do it from blurb but you can look at the whole book without having to buy it without having to pay for it because one of the things I'm trying to do is to promote people doing dream work with each other on the internet on their own i i have i have great respect for the church of the larger fellowship i'm actually a member of the church of the larger fellowship but it doesn't have to be done through them at this point so, it's so the only here. official one that i know about but people should feel free to do it themselves so if they go if people listeners go to your website they can 
get uh, instructions to how to do a group, or do they have to go to the... Oh, well, the most coherent instructions are in the training manual specifically designed for that purpose, and that's at the blurb.com site. My own website, which is just jeremytaylor.com, has links to a bunch of other sites, particularly the International Association for the Study of Dreams site. There's a lot of stuff going on on the Internet sponsored by the International Association, going on in different languages and different countries. But, of course, since it's the Internet, anyone can be involved. Really, this is Jeremy, a very exciting time to, we're living in. I, I just went to the blurb.com website, and uh-huh. I, maybe I misunderstood what it is. Is it www.blurb.com? Yep. That's dot right. Com? Yep. Okay. Because I, I see it says make your own book. Yeah. Well, what you need to do is probably the easiest thing is to put my name in. And then it will take you to all the various books that I have. There, It's a, it's a publish-on-demand site. And I've done a bunch of publish-on-demand comic books or graphic novels, depending on what you want to call them about myth and dream and they should list them all all of them are available and in preview model you can see a lot of them the training manual which is called the clf online dreamwork leadership training manual the whole thing is available you can look at it from beginning to end on preview okay okay and let's see and your website is jeremy taylor dot com yeah and there's yeah. i say links to all these other all these other places we also want there's to quickly a, uh mention that you're going to be in auburn on uh, yes yes i am auburn, I california exchanging some emails about that i'm going to be up in auburn and uh there will be as i understand it i think the schedule is still being tinkered with but as i understand it there will be an open meeting on friday night for everybody, and then there will be a dream group and training session all day Saturday. I'll give out a phone number in case somebody wants to know about it. It's uh, area code 530-885-9469. That's 530-885-9469. And you can call and get information and directions. And you're also going to be in New York and Colorado. I mean, you're a oh, traveling yeah. man. Yep, yep. I, I do a lot of zooming around. I was going, for the last 11 years, I've been going to Korea every summer and doing dream work in simultaneous translation. I did not go this year because my wife's health was in jeopardy, and I didn't want to leave her alone for the four and a half weeks that I usually am gone. So I ended up doing a lot of the work on the Internet. The conferences I was going to go to had me in live conversation with them in the middle of the night because of the time zone differences. It really is on the other side of the world, so I was you know, doing my work way past midnight uh, through uh, Skype and Zoom and Google Plus and these other group video conferencing programs. 
Well, everybody, if you want to know events that uh, Jeremy's having, uh, you can hop onto his website, uh, jeremytaylor.com. Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, and Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R. So we've just barely covered what can be covered on Dreams today, but it was very interesting. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity to talk and to talk to your listeners. Yeah. We're we're uh, we're it's like a little dance, a dream dance here. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. We're, yeah, you know, it's beautiful and it's really exhilarating to be able to to understand ourselves at a deeper level and thank you so much for Oh well for we have face in common to... when it comes to that. I find it really amongst the top three exhilarating things in my life. I love it, and I'm always happy to talk to other people who are getting bitten by the bug. (laughs) (laughs) Well, count me in on getting bit by the bug. (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks again for the opportunity to talk to you. I will see you in Auburn, Jeremy. All right. I look forward to that with great enthusiasm. That's great. And I hope some of your listeners will be interested enough to at least stick their heads in on Friday night and see what's happening. Yes, and uh, we have listeners all over the world, so if they hop on your website, they can see you're going to be close. Indeed. Thank you. Oh, thanks again. Talk to you soon. Uh Bye-bye. Bye.